The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Morning, Harvest. Let's start straight away with the word, Acts chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 26 through 40. Acts 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and, began, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Well, the pastors and elders uh, sensed uh, this week uh, that God was leading us to alter uh, the plan that we had laid out for preaching for this week in favor of a message on this passage on uh, this topic of baptism. And you know that uh, if you're a member of our a family here, you know that we put a push on to have you here through social media, and uh, y'all should have received a phone call about this. Uh, get to church, get to church. And uh, the reason for this is very simple. Uh, we are ever vigilant as elders and pastors to ensure that the main thing remains the main thing. And in a church, it can become so easy uh, to be distracted by so many other things that are happening around us, and we have some big things in front of us that we do not want to be a distraction. The main thing, according to the scriptures, is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. The mandate that was given to us is to glorify God by making disciples and a uh, a big part of that is this matter of baptism, and we felt like it was essential for us to look at this topic on this 
weekend where we had some baptisms, a few baptisms scheduled, but to look at it in some depth, how we practice it, what it means, what it is. And so with baptisms already scheduled for our services, um, we're going to add on to that and do something that will be new for many of you, uh, but some of you who have been around here a while will remember us doing this a number of years ago, and that is that we're going to give you an opportunity If you have not been baptized, as I will uh, describe it from the scriptures, if you have not been baptized and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we're going to give you an opportunity to get baptized. And when I say that, what I mean by that is, we're going to give you an opportunity to be baptized uh, this morning. And though you came unprepared for this message or to be baptized, I'm telling you, the Spirit of God is going to press on some people uh, to, um, to convict you and convince you from the scriptures that today is your day to be baptized according to the word of God. And before we get there, so that those of you who have not been convinced of this yet can get to the place where you are, we're gonna wrestle uh, that decision down together by examining the scriptures here and laying out what we know about this important uh, Jesus-ordained practice of baptism. So ready for that? If you're ready for that, just say ready. All right, here we go. Let's talk, first of all, about the person who gets baptized. Now, in Acts 8, the passage we just read, the person who was baptized was this, uh, this Ethiopian man. And in Acts 2, if you go a little bit earlier in the passage, in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter's preached this message. We're going to refer to this a couple of times. And this is what Acts 2, 37 through 38 says. He, he preached, now when they heard what Peter had preached to them, The text says, they were cut to the heart. It penetrated their very hearts. And they asked this question, that when you come under the teaching of God's word, it's a great question to ask every single time you hear it, what then shall we do? How do we apply this truth? What do I need to do next? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? What shall we do? To which Peter replied, you can see it in the text there, two things he said, repent, Become a follower of Jesus Christ, turn from your way of doing things, repent, and what's the next part? Be baptized. Be baptized. That's Peter's whole application to this preaching of the gospel he had just done and the people's question. Later on we read in 241, so those who received his word, received his word, repented, became followers of Christ, what does it say? They were baptized. They were baptized. They were baptized. Paul would add later in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, when he's teaching the Galatian church about all of this, for as many of you, he just says this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, water baptized as a testimony to that, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, he's saying, those of you who got water baptized before you did that, you actually had already put on Christ. You had already become the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, in each portrayal of baptism in the New Testament, and we're exhausting kind of all of the verses that we have around this in the New Testament in this study this morning, but, but in every portrayal of baptism in the New Testament, the person was baptized, listen now, very important word, they were baptized after they made their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. There is no New Testament account whatsoever I know I'm going to ruffle a few feathers right now. I do that occasionally. Really, the Word of God is doing that, correct? There's no New Testament example, not even one, of an infant being baptized. I did a lot of reading on this this week. 
Some of you will recognize the name R.C. Sproul, and he's a, a very eminent theologian. He loves Jesus Christ with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He comes out of what we would describe as more of the Reformed tradition um, of, of our faith, and, um, and R.C. Sproul would admit this. So his, in his practice, as a follower of Christ and as a leader, they would baptize infants as a sign and seal of the covenant. And R.C. Sproul says, there's not a single incident, nothing portrayed with regard to infant baptism anywhere in the New Testament. He admits it. He admits it. It's, not, it's just not anywhere there. There just is no baptism apart from initially making a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we make a distinction here. I'm going to give you a couple of thousand dollar words. We make a distinction here between uh, pedo-baptism and credo-baptism. Pedo-baptism, pedo being the Greek word for child, so that's infant baptism as it's practiced by many, many different churches and church traditions. And then credo-baptism, credo being a Latin word meaning belief, believer's baptism, what most uh, Baptist, brethren, Pentecostal, um, independent, evangelical churches and such would practice like ourselves, all right? So those two terms, there are some who are pedo-baptists and some that are credo-baptists, and we're seeking to understand what the scriptures would say about all of this. But the person who gets baptized is the one who has considered the claims of Christ for themselves and then placed their personal faith in him and an infant simply cannot do that. Now, I know my own background is this. I didn't come to Christ until I was in my teen years. Our family really didn't even come under the exposure of the gospel until I was in my teen years. My mom and dad are sitting right down here to my right, and, um, and uh, I grew up in Montreal, and, and at nine months of age, uh, they took me to St. Ignatius Parish, just around the corner from our house, and uh, they didn't ask me if I wanted to do that at all, but they took me, and they christened me at nine months uh, of age, and and. And that was a good thing, and it expressed at least some recognition on their part that there was a God, and this was a right thing to do, and there was some sense of propriety about it, and that was all a good thing. I'm glad they did it. But, but I, didn't, I didn't profess faith in Christ at nine months old. I didn't know if I was going to love Jesus Christ and want to live for him all of my life. And so the order really was just kind of out of sync, even though we would acknowledge it wasn't a bad thing for them to do. But my real baptism, my biblical back, baptism happened when I was uh, 21 years of age and after having come to Christ and made a personal profession of faith in him in 1985, I got baptized at Faith Baptist Church in St. Thomas by Marvin Brubaker and that was my biblical baptism that came after my profession of faith in him. That was my credo baptism. And listen, that's just what we see modeled in the scriptures. And so that's the person. The person who gets baptized is the one who's made a decision themselves to be baptized. That makes sense? Check. Check. All right, number two. Why we baptize, the purpose of it. Uh, four reasons. Uh, first of all, this it's a picture of Christ's redemption. And there's a couple of uh, passages here that I could give you. I think they're in your notes, but Romans 6, uh, 3 and 4. Uh, let's just look at that one together. Uh, really, they're parallel uh, passages in many ways. Just having a little difficulty finding Romans. Here we go. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. 
Now, I'm going to say this about Romans 6 and about the Colossians 2 passage, that the primary significance of these passages is not water baptism, but water baptism or the idea of baptism is used as a metaphor or an illustration of the spiritual point that Paul is seeking to make. And what he does here is he creates a picture for us of what's really happening in baptism or what baptism really, I should say, what baptism really uh, pictures. It is a picture of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and our union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And some pastors will even say this, because you know what's going to happen here in the baptism in a few moments. Those of you who have seen this before, the person will be standing there representing their life, and then they're going to be uh, led backwards down into the water, so buried, buried in the likeness of his death. Some pastors will even say this in in doing the baptisms, buried in the likeness of his death and then raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And so baptism, in a very real sense, pictures the very thing that Jesus Christ has done for us. That's so important so that every time we see a baptism done in the way the Bible prescribes, we're getting the gospel. We're hearing the gospel and we're keeping the death, burial, and resurrection central in the life of the church and and in the life of each of us as the followers of Jesus Christ. And so the purpose, first of all, is a picture of Christ's redemption. Secondly, of this, a personal response of faith. Uh, this is why we have baptism. The Great Commission, these are our marching orders that Jesus gave us as the followers of Jesus Christ just prior to his ascension. The marching orders include baptism in the mandate. I don't know if we like, often think about that. But the commission that Jesus gave us has baptism right there. He said this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now the, the, the principal command of these verses of the commission is the make disciples part, not the going part. Make disciples is the main command. And that's to be fulfilled in three ways that are all articulated right here. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What does it say next? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say, and teaching them to observe all things. And so the main command is make disciples. How do we do that? We go, also a command, uh, with the force of a command. We baptize and we teach them to observe all things. That's the three ways that we make disciples. So baptisms, like that's one of the principal commands one of the three ways that we fulfill the principal command of the Great Commission that Jesus Christ has given to us. So this is, baptism is the Jesus-prescribed means of publicly professing our faith in him. Jesus prescribes this. Now, if Jesus prescribes this, you better take the meds. You better fill the script. You better do the thing that Jesus said that we ought to do. This is our declaration that we're going to follow him. And then Peter coming hard on the heels of Jesus saying, this is your command. And he preaches his first message on the day of Pentecost. And he gives the invitation at the end of the first sermon. And he says to them, we've looked at this verse already, repent and be baptized every one of you. Jesus just picking up on exactly what Jesus said. The way we're going to make disciples is we're going to preach the gospel and get people baptized as a testimony to that. It's a personal decision that you must make for yourself. And listen, no one else can make that decision for you. All right, we're locking down the purposes here. Here's a third one. It's also a means of grace. A means of grace, of God's grace in our lives. Now, I was ordained, I, I, I came to Christ in the Salvation Army, which doesn't even practice baptism, 
but, but I was um, trained for ministry through a Baptist college. I was ordained in a Baptist church, spent 16 years there before I came to this church, a non-denominational church. And, and as a Baptist, there's just so many Baptists, not all of them, but so many of them who believe that baptism is, listen, just a symbol. It's just a symbol. That's all it is, is a metaphor for the Christian life and nothing more going on. I believe it's a little bit more than that. I believe that it's more than a symbol. And here's what I'm going to, how I'm going to explain this. Stephen Wellam wrote this. I think he says it as well as anyone. Baptism as the initiating rite of the church is one of God's means of grace that he has given to his people. What this implies, of course, is that in the practice of baptism, there is the blessing of God. In our obedience to Christ and in our public act of confessing him, the Lord of the church pours his love and joy into our hearts. Now, no doubt, even though baptism in and out of itself does not bring us into a state of grace, that's such an important line, does not bring us into a state of grace, it has been ordained by God as a proper means of grace that, that we ignore, distort, or downplay to the loss of our spiritual health, life, and mission. You just don't want to forfeit anything that God has for you. If God has a blessing that's ready to be poured out on you, and, and, and if baptism is a way of obeying him and receiving that blessing, wouldn't you want that blessing? I just can't understand why anybody would reject the blessing that God has for them. It's a means of grace, and then a fourth purpose, it serves as a testimony to others it declares publicly that you are a Christ follower. And in the hostile culture of the first century, when this is being written and prescribed as the means of testifying, it just wasn't lost on people. They understood that if you went down to the river or the lake and you got baptized, that people saw that in these public areas and they knew whatever your life was before in terms of belief and practice, it wasn't gonna be that anymore. It was gonna be something different. And you identified yourself with all of those people who believed that. And that could have significant consequences. And we might be tempted to say, well, you know, it just doesn't seem like baptism has the same effect today. And, and yet I would say this because I've, heard, I've talked to so many people who would just say to me, you know what, if I get baptized, I just know there's going to be people upset with me when I do. I just know that there's going to be family members who don't understand it and might even reject me. And you know what that tells me? That baptism still has that same power today that people still know that when you go through the waters of baptism, it means something, that you've drawn a line, that it's no longer this, but this in my life. And that's the purpose that God has for it. Baptism is really a megaphone pronouncing your allegiance to Jesus Christ and his church. And what I say about that megaphone is this, let's turn the volume up and let's let the world know that we're following Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Amen. Don't clap. I'm not done. All right. That's just two. I got six to get through. Here we go. Number three, timing. When should a person be baptized? Answer, as soon as possible after having placed personal faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. As soon as possible after having confessed faith in Jesus Christ. What we see modeled in the scriptures for us, I'm going to show you some examples, is Believe, baptized. Believe, baptized. Believe, baptized. It's just as simple as that. Modeled in the Ethiopian. They're, they're going along the road. They're in the chariot. He explains it. He gets it. The lights come on. The Spirit convicts them. There's water. Baptized. 
Day of Pentecost, Peter, Acts 2, preaches a message, 3,000 people baptized. You get into the Apostle Paul and some of his examples. Well, even before that, Peter, in Acts chapter 10, goes to Cornelius, his household, his friends. He gets them all together. Peter preaches. They get baptized. Then Paul in Acts 16 with Lydia and her household, the Philippian jailer in his household, preaches the gospel. They get it. They all get baptized right away. Right away. When should a person be baptized? As soon as possible after having professed faith in Jesus Christ. There's simply not a lot of rationale for waiting. That only begs one question for us as a church then because we have families here and kids who have been born here and, and, and then they grow up here and at some point they become followers of Jesus Christ. So the question becomes, well, when are they old enough to actually be baptized? And we all know that children begin to come into their own if you've raised kids uh, through the uh, teen years, uh, then you know that kids begin to come into their own at age, depending on the child, 11, 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there, they begin thinking differently. Uh, some days in that age bracket, some days they're still your little boy or girl, and on other days they're adults that uh, you wish would quickly leave home. <laughs> and uh, parents who have raised them know this. And uh, so you just never know. You never know which, who am I facing right now, the child or am I facing the adult? And, and so we know they're coming into their own and they're thinking on moral terms and they're making decisions that are gonna shape the rest of their life. And, and our elders have just determined as a best practice for our church based on the best wisdom that we have that it's best to let a child reach that age where the decision is genuinely their own. That there's wisdom attached to waiting for what many have called the age of accountability. So that they will have that remembrance of it and they'll know that they made the decision and they weren't a child when they did make that decision. And so we just prefer them to wait. Uh, really the line that we have drawn and admittedly it's a bit of an arbitrary line because there could be kids that are ready before and there could be kids that have to wait a few years after but we've just drawn the line at between grade six and seven, around 12 years of age, that we'll begin talking to uh, these young people about their faith in Christ and whether or not it's a good time for them to be uh, baptized. And so that's kind of the, uh, the only exception to all of that, to the as soon as possible. All right? Number four, the mode. So there are uh, primarily three modes of baptism. There's uh, sprinkling, there's pouring, which is practiced uh, to a large extent among uh, some Mennonite groups, and, and then there's uh, immersion, which we would practice here. And um, we want to talk about the mode of baptism. We practice immersion, and really we do that uh, for three reasons. I'm going to give these to you. Write down the word uh, model, model. Uh, this is what's practiced in the New Testament is immersion. Again, back to Acts chapter 8, our principal passage for today, in the, as in the account of, of John the Baptist. Now, his baptism wasn't the baptism of the church, but remember, John the Baptist went to a place where there was enough water. That's what the text says. And, and in Acts chapter 8, here's what's going on here. The grammar tells us that immersion was practiced. They see the water as they're coming along, and they recognize that it's like enough water to be baptized in. And then notice this in the grammar. They both went down down into the water. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And, and, when, and when they came up, 
up out of the water. Now, both, both of those phrases let us know that there was a going down into and there was a coming out of, and it indicates that there was like enough water to actually immerse a person. And, th and then I think of this, like if, if, if we were only practicing sprinkling, if it was okay to pour, then surely as they were traveling through a desert region in, a, in an entourage, in a chariot, that there would have been water, a canteen of some kind available to them that if it was sprinkling or pouring, they could have literally just stopped anywhere on the road and Philip could have baptized the Ethiopian by sprinkling or pouring just using the water that was available. But instead, they needed water to actually go down into so that it could be immersion. So that's the model. That's what we see, and that's why we practice it. And then secondly, this, um, the symbol. So we put down the word model, now symbol. Again, we saw this in Romans 6, 3 to 4. We won't look at the passage again. But sprinkling and pouring simply do not picture in fullness the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that we just talked about. So we have, we have to do it this way in order to show the picture of the gospel. And then thirdly, the word itself, the word origin, the word baptism. Now, baptism, Baptist, baptizing, all of these words, the various um, uh, words that we use in English for this are loan words from Greek. Now, now, you know about loan words because we have a lot of them in the English language. In fact, um, English is heavily influenced by French, and uh, though they don't have the same uh, origins on the, on the language tree, we have uh, as much as 45% of our language in English is influenced by French and Latin. And so a lot of French loan words, words like money and commerce and passport and aisle and facade and limousine and sauce and pâté, those are all French words that we use in English. So now baptism is a loan word that we've taken from Greek. Let me show it to you. So in the Greek script, uh, baptizo on the far left, and then just uh, anglicizing that for us, baptizo, so we can read it. And then on, on the right is how we've just brought that word. You can see how we just brought that word from Greek into English to make it baptism. Why did that happen? Well, the New Testament was primarily written in Greek. When it was put into other languages, the best word would be used to translate it into the new language, including English. But the best definition of the word baptism in the original Greek, the best definition, the primary definition of this word, the one that's used most often, is this. To dip, to sink, to submerge, or to immerse. That's the definition in Greek of baptism. Now, if you were to translate the word into English, as immerse would have had some pretty far-reaching consequences at the time in the, sixth, in the 17th century when the word of God was being translated into English for the first time. Because the people doing the translations were related to the Church of England, which practiced sprinkling. And so literally, if they had translated it as they should have into English, then Acts 8.36 would have read this way. See, the Ethiopian saying, see, here is water. What prevents me from being immersed if I translated it? What prevents me from being dipped? What prevents me from being submerged? And that would have made a massive problem for the leaders of the Church of England who were sprinkling babies. And so they couldn't translate it. They needed to borrow the word from Greek, transliterate it, and make it a new 
English word. Now, all of those reasons aside, what did I say? Model, the, the, the model, the symbol, and the origin of the word all lead us toward immersion. But beside all of that, I will just say this. Immersion is just have more fun than sprinklers. <laughs> so I, I have one story I could tell, and there are many. Um, that any of these guys who have done baptisms just know this. I've got it several, but there was this one at my previous church, uh, Faith Baptist. Uh, Joel was uh, real young, but he was so, so eager to kind of see what dad did and, and be a part of all of this. And our baptistry, if you can imagine, if this was the auditorium at Faith in those days, up behind the drum kit, behind the screen, there would have been an, a recessed room and you could just see the, the portion it would be an opening where you would just see the tank, the baptism tank, but you, you wouldn't actually see the water or any of that. You would just see people in the tank, and there were stairs behind stage that people would come down into. And so we would stand there in front of the auditorium way up high, and people would see the baptisms. And so I was baptizing this guy, and Joel, so he, he and I were standing right here, and it was, a, it was a very sizable tank. You could put like six, seven people in it, and there was a, um, a plug right, right there, like standard bathtub plug. And the guy in our standing here, and, and Joel's on the steps, so the people can't see Joel. He's on the steps watching me. I don't even know how old he was at the time, like five or something. And he's watching me right here. And as we're talking, the guy I'm baptizing kicks the plug out. And so now I hear the water. It's Water's going out. And so as the guy's telling his story of coming to Jesus, I got like my toes down here. And Joel can see the whole thing. Joel's the only one who knows what's going on. He's five, but he's assessing the situation. And I hear him say, Dad, Dad. And he's up here. He's taking his shirt off and in the dive position. <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, I got the plug in uh, just in time. But I'm, I'm just telling you... Um, if you sprinkle, stuff like that never happens. <laughs> you just don't have as much fun. All right, where does that put us in terms of our Christian uh, baptism practices in the broad sense of the word Christian? Uh, let, just a slide up here that's going to help us here to understand um, three very distinct views of baptism. Um, the first one is this, that baptism is required for salvation. And this is held by Catholics who are paedo-baptists. They baptize children. But in the Catholic teaching, in Catholic dogma, they teach that this is actually a sacrament that is required uh, for salvation. And that at the moment that the child is being christened, that, that regeneration is coming upon the child. That's what Catholics believe. That's not what we believe. Baptism, secondly, hopes for salvation. This would be the position of those who would be in the Reformed movement. Most mainline Protestant denominations would hold this. They would also be paedo-baptists. Um, not salvation, admitting that a child is not, not getting saved at the, at the christening, at the, at the uh, infant baptism, but it is identification with the covenant community. And one theologian that I read just simply wrote this. He described this in terms of, I love this phrase, a probable future regeneration. Okay, that's what, that's what this category of churches would believe. Probable future regeneration. And then thirdly, baptism gives evidence of salvation, and this would be the baptistic position, or credo-baptist, which is where we would land, and again, Pentecostals and brethren and uh, alliance churches and um, uh, uh, evangelical churches of, of most kinds would uh, um, embrace this. 
And all of that said, having established that our, our mode of baptism is immersion, we've established that. I do want to say that there are a couple of exceptions to that because we don't want to become legalistic religionists who just are so intent on our mode of baptism that we miss the heart of God and the heart of God's people. And so there are a couple of exceptions where we do not require immersion. One of those would be if there's a physical infirmity that prevents a person from getting in the tank or going down into water or being put backwards, if it's dangerous in any way to the person from a health perspective, then we will pour them. And I've practiced pouring baptism on two occasions in the last couple of years. Last evening, there was a man over here to my left named James, and uh, he came, and he, he had no ability to go backwards in the water. And so we brought him down here, and we had a pool, and we poured a, a bucket of water over his head after his profession of faith in Christ. And his only condition was, make sure all of me gets wet. Use enough water, is what James said. And, and listen, we just don't want to become legalists, do we? Because what's more important to us than the mode is the timing, that the baptism still happened after he professed faith in Christ. And so that's exception one. Here's exception two. If in good conscience you came to faith in Christ in a church that does not practice immersion, but after you made your profession of faith in Christ, that church sprinkled or poured you, but it was after you made your decision for Christ, so it's still credo-baptism, it's just not by immersion, then we will accept you into membership here without rebaptizing you. And we, again, we just don't want to become religionists who are so intent on our forms that we miss the heart of God and the heart of God's people. Does that make sense? All right, we're trying to use wisdom in all of these things. All right, a couple more things. Number five, the place. There is no prescribed place except for this. In Acts 8.38, they both went down into the water. And so, here's the, here's the two conditions on this concerning place. There needs to be enough water, and it needs to be public because it's a testimony. There needs to be enough water, and it needs to be public in some fashion. And uh, the, the, the folks who came to Christ in Acts chapter 2 at Peter's preaching, 3,000 of them all got baptized on that day. It was a very public thing. The Ethiopian did it. He was a high-ranking government official. He, he was the minister of finance in the, in, in the queen's court in Ethiopia. There's no way he's traveling alone. In fact, in the command, when he tells the chariot to stop, he's obviously not driving the chariot. He commanded it to stop. And because he was such a high-ranking government official, you can expect there was an entourage of many chariots who were going with him and guards who were protecting him. And when he got baptized, he, it was witnessed by this grand entourage of Ethiopians who were with him. It's just a public thing. And in our 15 years as a church, by my accounting, we have baptized, I think, as far as I could remember, in about eight different locations, um, different places, including around Simcoe County, including Carthew Bay and Oro Beach, a couple of our outdoor baptisms, Rounds Ranch, uh, Tyndale Park, uh, the old Emanuel Baptist Church on St. Vincent Street, and uh, Inniswood Baptist Church on Young Street we've used. Uh, we baptized at Emma King Elementary School our first four years. Uh, I remember in those days we didn't own our own tank, so we rented from Ecstasy Hot Tubs, but just once. <laughs> It was just awkward having the truck out front. 
Um, <laughs> here at Timothy, of course, all of these different places, a few backyard pools, just where there's enough water and where it's public enough that people are witnessing it. All right, that's the place. And then what are the benefits? Uh, simply state it. Obedience brings blessing. You write that down. Obedience brings blessing. It brings, brings blessing for you. And we've talked about the means of grace, enjoying all that God has for you. You should want that. And you should want to be baptized as a testimony of your faith in Christ to get that. There's also benefits for fellow believers. Nothing more stirring for me. If there's a baptism video that I'm about to watch, I just know don't press play until the Kleenex is close because I'm going to cry as I hear the stories of people who were once this way and they met Jesus and their life was transformed by him. That is so stirring and so encouraging. And for those of you who are going to get baptized here this morning, I want you to know how much of a blessing you're going to be to the church who already loves Jesus and loves to hear these stories of lives being transformed. It's awesome. Benefits for you, benefits for fellow believers, and then benefits for a dying world. When we do this, we are picturing a rare kind of commitment in our society. And it's attention getting. It attracts the attention of those who do not know Jesus Christ. The act of baptizing, baptizing, as we said, pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it in itself is a witness of the gospel to those who don't know him. It's a powerful symbol. And those who are without hope in this world can be drawn to Jesus simply by witnessing your baptism. And so that's it. That's baptism according to the word of God, the person, the purpose, the timing, mode, place, and benefits of baptism. And the Ethiopian asked the, the critical question in Acts 8 was this, what prevents me from being baptized? And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ or a, a baptized follower of Jesus Christ, you might ask, you should ask the same question. What prevents me from being baptized right now. It could be, and I, I've heard all the excuses, it could be that you're saying, I was baptized as an infant, and that's good, but it's not what we've seen here in the Word of God. We want to follow the authority of God's Word, don't we? Not tradition, not what we were taught growing up, we want to test it against what the plain reading of the Word of God says. Maybe your excuse is, I'm a, I'm a believer, isn't that enough? And no, it isn't. Peter made it clear, repent and be baptized. Maybe some of you are like, I want my family here. But the timing of it is clear. As soon as possible after you make a profession of faith in Christ, and your family can watch the video later. My family won't approve. It's another excuse. Well, you don't answer to your family. You answer to Jesus Christ. And he said this, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of my kingdom. I'm too old. No one's too old. I'm not good enough. No one's good enough. We're putting on the righteousness of Christ. 
I'm afraid of water. Perfect love casts out fear. And Pastor Roger loves you, and he's never lost anyone in the tank. I can assure you of that. I'm afraid of being in front of people. Again, perfect love casts out fear, and these people love you. It's too soon, I'm not ready. No, you are ready. If you're a follower of Christ, you are ready. I declare according to the authority of God's word that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're ready. You see, the Ethiopian man refused to make excuses. He was seeking for God. He found faith in Christ. He was convinced of what Peter had taught him. He surrendered his life in front of that whole entourage and got baptized on the spot in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He didn't let unbelief or anything else stand in the way of him testifying by baptism to his faith in Christ. And really when it comes down to it, the only thing that's going to prevent you from being baptized is you. And the decision that you're going to make in this very moment, it's unbelief that will hold you back if you refuse to believe that this is what Jesus Christ requires. Unbelief says this, Tozer writes. Unbelief says some other time, but not now. Some other place, but not here. Some other people, but not us. Faith says anything he did anywhere else, he will do here. Anything he did any other time, he's willing to do now. Anything he ever did for other people, he's willing to do for us. With our feet on the ground and our head cool, but with our heart ablaze with the love of God, we walk out in the fullness of the Spirit if we will yield and obey. God wants to work through you. And all you have to do is say yes now. So there it is. If you've never been baptized as a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your moment. If you're convinced after hearing what the Bible has to say about it, this is your opportunity. We uh, often hear one further excuse at this moment. I didn't come prepared. I don't have a change of clothes. I don't have a towel. Conveniently, we have remembered all of these things. We have shorts, we have t-shirts, we have towels, and we have leaders who are making their way to the back of the room right now, ready to talk to you. And so here's what's gonna happen. We're gonna have the worship team lead us through a couple of songs. We're gonna sing and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we're doing that, those of you who have not been baptized as a testimony of your faith in Christ, you're gonna make your way to the back, even though you didn't come here expecting to be baptized today, you're gonna get baptized. Amen. And then maybe, maybe there's some here who came in here and, and you came in not even following Jesus Christ. And this morning, you're going to give your life to Jesus Christ. You're going to find the forgiveness of sins and you're going to repent and be baptized all in the same morning. Last night we did this in a room that 
wasn't nearly as full as this one. We had two people scheduled to be baptized as we have one scheduled for this morning. But four others responded to the call last night. Amen. So that's it. That's my whole appeal. I'm not coming back up here again. We're going to stand right now together and we're going to worship the Lord as you respond to his call. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.